So we are in the book of Corinthians, and we're in 1 Corinthians for now. You probably received one of these on your way in this morning. We'll get to this during the message, okay? This is a communion emblems, and I'll explain this, and, and uh, we'll do something during the message regarding this, a little different today. But I wanted to sort of zoom in a bit because we've raced through the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians um, over, what, three weeks um, in the first message, we just talked about how it's remarkable that there is a church there in the city of Corinth, this crazy place with all of these problems, you actually have a church there. And it's a church, although it has many problems, it's still a thriving church. You see things in the letters to the Corinthians that show this. So it's not like it, well, there was li there was life in there. It's not like it was a dead church. It's just a church with a lot of life and a lot of problems at the same time. So quite a remarkable reality that there was a church there and that God wasn't calling these people to run away from Corinth and try to find some place that was sort of less sinful to have their church. It was, no, you, you're the church in Corinth. And you see Paul starts to address different issues that the church is struggling with. And he talks about divisions and unity and this kind of thing in the first three, four chapters. And then in uh, chapter five, chapter six, uh, the message last week, uh, sex, lies, and lawyers. So if you haven't heard that message, um, you, you might want to tune in. That's the one that Facebook <laughs> Facebook uh, put a copyright on. So I don't know, maybe I'm doing something right there. Um, and today I want to zoom in a little bit on a couple of things that are in those first six chapters that get, usually we get, we skim over them very, very fast. And they really are powerful truths that affect your life today, but we kind of take them for granted in the modern church, and I don't think we should. Uh, so the message is the lamb and the temple, the lamb and the temple today. And I just want to give you some, some theology that Paul uses to try and teach these folks. And the theology that he's using is so like revolutionary what he's saying. Again, we, we sort of skip over it, but it is really, really something what he's talking about. And I want to do it for you in a practical way. Most people, when they hear the word theology, they start falling asleep. I notice, I notice, uh, I do look at you when I speak, and I do notice some of you have very, very good sleeps when I, when I preach. So I, I'm not offended by this, you know, I'm not, if, if, look, if it, if it relaxes you, that's no problem. I heard, a, once I went to Cuba with a guy on a missions trip, and he said, Pastor, you're like a tape, you're like a tape, no problem. If you get good sleep, it's no, I'm not offended, okay? Um, but I want to make it practical for you. Theology is not boring if you, if you really understand what these writers are talking about, it's really quite exciting and quite practical in your life. But sometimes we don't appreciate the practicality of the theology. So I want to do two, two things with you that he does in these first six chapters, what he calls the Passover lamb and what he calls the temple of God. All right. So 
uh, first and foremost, uh, talking about this Passover lamb. And what Paul does here, uh, he does in uh, chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. And if you remember, and we talked about it last week, you've got the, the rather embarrassing situation of the man who has this illicit relationship with his stepmother. And Paul is trying to, to tell them what to do and how to handle this situation and so on. And look what he does here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, uh, don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough, little yeast. So get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, so a batch of dough without yeast, as you really are, and here it is, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. That's a huge, huge newsflash. Now, you may, not, you may not see that, but you've got to put yourself back in time 2,000 years ago. And what he's saying there is really quite something. Because he's talking to an audience of Greeks, yes, but he's talking to an audience of Jews as well. And the Jews there would understand exactly what he's talking about, and they would be really, really, like this would be like a revelation to them. Um, here's why. Uh, because this Passover lamb mentioned here rings an enormous bell in their minds. We are now in the, um, the season uh, leading up to Easter, and uh, in some uh, Christian traditions, we call this Lent. Right? Any of you know what Lent is? Some of you do. It's not a bad thing. You know, but Lent, or uh, some of you know, know what Ash Wednesday is. Maybe you've seen this actor, Mark Wahlberg, now is all over the, the, the internet there. He's Catholic and very, very outspoken. And Ash Wednesday, and he's leading people in prayer with the fellow who plays uh, Jesus from the Chosen series. And so th this whole season of Lent, which refers to uh, like the um, pre-spring or the spring season, people uh, identify with the 40 days that lead, or, or the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness being tempted. And people start to meditate on, on Easter and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And people uh, pray more, people give more, people fast more, people uh, take stock of their lives and repent of certain things and say, I'm not gonna do this and I'm not gonna do this. It's a really, really nice tradition. And um, this tradition, though, has a, has a history be way, way, way behind it, way before there was Lent, way before there was the, the cross and the empty tomb, there was Passover. And if you go back, way, way, way back to the book of Exodus, you learn what this is, the Passover. And probably most of you know bits and pieces of the whole story of Passover, where the Jews were in slavery to who? The Egyptians, good. And they're led out of Egypt by what leader? His name starts with M. 
Moses, good, okay, so Moses will bring the people out, and he will famously say, let my people go, oh great, so you, you, you know some of the contours there. Now there was a, a special, special, very unique night uh, that was observed there when the people finally left Egypt, and you have a whole series of these plagues, Remember, you, how many plagues were there? Ten, okay. I won't ask you to name them, all right? But you have these plagues, and the last plague, you have this whole thing where God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. His heart is hard. Pharaoh hardens it. It's hard. it's, you have this whole thing being played out there. Now, there's a final, final plague. You know what this plague is? The death of the firstborn. That's bad. That's really, really heavy stuff. So th there is a very clear command from God through Moses as to what's going to happen the night that these hundreds of thousands of people are going to leave slavery in Egypt. And they've, you've, we've got it all there, very clear in the Old Testament. You read it beginning in the book of Exodus, you see it. You've got the day there, 14th day of the month, which... Uh, the Babylonians would later call that month Nisan, and you have to do this very clear thing, they were told. You have to take these lambs, and you have to slaughter these lambs. And you're to take the blood of these lambs, and you have to put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses, and, and you're to eat this lamb. You have to roast it, and you eat it. And you don't leave any of it until morning. And it, they're very clear instructions. And God tells them, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. And the blood, he says, will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. So this is something that was to be commemorated for the ages as a lasting ordinance. And we're moving into that season now in the calendar. I always laugh at the, at the confusion you have, you have, how do they figure out when the day of Easter is? How do they figure out when Passover is? It's so confusing. But anyway, in the Jewish calendar, we're moving into that time and also moving into the time of Easter, not coincidentally, okay? And you see this whole Passover thing play out through the history of the Jewish people. You see the Passover lamb mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 16. You see this in Leviticus. You see it in Numbers. It's, it's very clear this was a very important uh, uh, religious holiday, if you will, for the Jewish people, and still is today. And even when you get to uh, the Gospels, we do have a mention um, in Mark's Gospel uh, of this as well. And Mark talks about the preparations uh, for the sacrifice of the Passover lamb in Mark chapter 14, verse 12. 
really, really important reference because it tells us, hey, they were doing this right up through, right to the time of Jesus. It's like 1,500 years minimum. They were doing this right till his time. And that reference from Mark 14 would lead into what we call the Last Supper or the, the uh, uh, there's a Passover that's celebrated there and that's right where Jesus has that Last Supper with his disciples. You with me so far? So here you have Paul dealing with a situation in the church. This is after Jesus' death, after his resurrection, and he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And what he's doing there is he's saying that that lamb that they would Sacrifice right from the first night that it was done, the night of the Exodus, right from there, and every year, right up until you Corinthians, right up until now, you've got to understand that that lamb is representative of Jesus, and he is our Passover lamb. We have a whole study, a whole field in theology called typology. And this is a classic type and anti-type here. The type is the lamb. The anti-type is Jesus. He is the fulfillment of this whole Passover ceremony is fulfilled in Jesus. He is the perfect spotless lamb who is sacrificed. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, in Paul's view, that means you've got you've to deal with sin now. You've got to deal with these problems that you're having in this church. And that bread that they used to eat that didn't have any yeast in it, he's saying that's a picture of something. You've got to get rid of that old sin. You can't live the same way why? Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Well, why? What is the purpose of the sacrifice of Jesus then? Well, even as the lamb was sacrificed in the Old Testament and the blood of this lamb was put on these doorposts so that the angel would preserve the lives of those Hebrew people and they would get out of slavery, so the death of Jesus on the cross gets us out of slavery, not out of slavery to Egypt or to Pharaoh, but out of slavery to sin. Ding, 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 ding. For the Corinthians, the light is going on in their head. And they're saying, wow, that's, that's really something. Man, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So if he is the fulfillment of all that, then that means, wow, we've got we've to somehow live differently now. Oh, we can't just say that we're Christians. We've got to live like we're Christians. We've got to do something about issues of holiness and issues of sin. We have to do something about this because Christ, our Passover lamb, is the fulfillment of hundreds and hundreds of years of this ceremony that we've been observing. So what I'd like you to do is take your emblems here and to just tear off the, the little top layer and you have a, a wafer here, it's really, really simple. And this is the, the idea 
of Jesus when he had that last supper with those people. He said, take this. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then later on, Paul would say, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Why? To free us from slavery to sin. Amen. Would you partake of the wafer with me? Now, in that same ceremony uh, that that you have this whole thing with the Passover, and the, even in the very same ceremony, Jesus would also say, and I put the picture there so it would be more vivid for you, you know, they would have to take these hyssop branches and, and take this blood of this lamb and put it over the doorposts of the home there in the very, very first night of the Exodus. This is what they did. And even in their Passover now, they eat bitter herbs and so on. All types and symbols to remind them of the whole thing of we have gotten out from Egypt. Well, here you have Jesus at the Last Supper, and he says, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Wow. Do this in remembrance of me. And Paul would teach the Corinthians, for whenever you eat this bread and whenever you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you peel back the little second layer there and you just have some juice? And again, this is a symbol of that blood of the lamb that was shed for us so that we could be forgiven of our sins. Let us partake together. Get rid of the old yeast. Therefore, you have to now change because of what Christ has done for you. Christ has been sacrificed for you, so you need the unleavened bread of sincerity. You need the unleavened bread of truth. This is the theology of the Passover lamb. So remember, folks, like the reason why our Savior died was to save us. It wasn't to entertain us. It wasn't to be an example for us. It wasn't uh, because he was a really righteous person. It wasn't for those reasons. It was to redeem us from our sin. That doesn't mean you're going to have a perfect life. That doesn't mean you're not going to go through struggles. That doesn't mean that you're exempt from suffering. It means that your sins can be forgiven. And you can have fellowship with God even as you walk through life. Isn't that exciting? Well, I think it's really, really exciting. And I, and I think the Corinthians would have said, wow, that's really something. Boy, they would have felt like we really need to do something about this problem that we're having in our church. We've really, really missed the boat on this one. But Paul, he, he won't stop there. He won't only use the Passover lamb to try and teach them. He's going to also talk to them about what he calls God's temple. God's temple. And you see this in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Chapter 3, if I have it here somewhere. 
chapter 3, yeah. And so uh, you see this in the whole thing about the divisions that are happening, right? And you have one who follows Paul and one who says he follows Peter and one who says he follows Apollos, all these leaders, and you have these factions developing and so on. And Paul is going to use theology here to try and explain to them why they're wrong. <laughs> and here's what he says. The, who is Paul? You know, who is Apollos? We're just servants. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. This is how your church grew. You know, I started it. Apollos watered it. But God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service, and you, and the you is plural, so yous are God's field. Yous are God's building, the people. And we, this word that we use for church, uh, we, you know, we, the image that we are sort of conjured in our minds when we think of church is a place. We think of a building with a cross on it, maybe. You know, uh, looks very nice and well-kept and it's clean and so on. And, and we say, this is the church. Or we say, this is the temple of God. And that's not what he's saying here. He's saying, use, use our God's field. Use our God's building. And he, and he continues to, to hammer this point home don't you know, verse 16, that you, and it's plural, use yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. Wow, this again is a huge, huge revelation. Now, while the Greeks may have held to some of this thinking, that, uh, you know, the presence of the deity, whatever deity that they were worshiping, would be sort of amongst the people in some ways. We do see this in some of the Greek writings uh, of the same time. And remember, Corinth, you've got three temples to Aphrodite there. You've got a temple to Apollo there uh, and Poseidon. We have one there. There are several, but Aphrodite being the main uh, goddess of fertility and sexuality and this kind of thing. We've looked at this already. But here, he's saying to people who would understand that the, the dwelling place of God, the Hebrew God, is supposed to be the temple, which is in Jerusalem. And he's saying, use are the temple. Use are the temple of God. Again, it's plural. So you, when you gather together, that's where God is. You're gathering, you're the ecclesia, that's the word that we translate church into English, but it means meeting, it means a gathering, it means people who come together. And Jesus said, we looked at this last week, I will build my ecclesia. So it's not just any meeting, it's his meeting. He's the center of attention. And people have been doing this for 2,000 years. You have a pandemic. Folk, pandemics come and pandemics go. I still see people here, right? People come and they gather. But folks, this is not a, 
This is not a church building. This is a movie theater. It doesn't matter. There's an ecclesia here. At 1030, it's an ecclesia. And now we've got to even got a little sign on, on the board that says, hey, there's an ecclesia here that comes here. So it doesn't matter where the people are. It matters that the people are. Use are the temple of God. Wow, this is, this is a revolutionary thought, folks. Because again, the Jewish people, the place is the temple. This is where God dwells. This is where we go. They had uh, different religious festivals that they had to go make an appearance in Jerusalem, go to the temple. What happens when Jesus is crucified? You have a curtain there that separates the most holy place in the temple where they had the Ark and the Covenant, Ark of the Covenant and so on, where nobody could go except a high priest once a year, very elaborate ceremony, and you have this curtain and it's ripped in half. Uh, we see this in the gospel record when Jesus is crucified. Without explanation, it's torn in half. Well, this is symbolic of the idea that the presence of God is no longer restricted to a place. Curtain is ripped in half. What happens 40 years later? No more temple. The temple would be destroyed by the Romans. It's still destroyed. You can go and visit Jerusalem and you'll see a retaining wall that's left over and that's it. No more temple. And here you have Paul saying, before the destruction of the temple, yous are the temple of God. When you come together, that's where God is. That is something else. I, a couple of illustrations come to mind. I remember uh, 20, wow, it's 24 years ago, I think it was, my wife is in the room, and we went and visited a um, bunch of churches on a vacation in California. We're strange. When we go to some of these cities, we say, oh, we got to go visit the churches. <laughs> so we went and visited uh, one of the largest churches in California at the time, still is. And uh, uh, you may be familiar with the name Rick Warren. Some of you have read his book, Purpose Driven Life, probably. And I remember going, we, we went to this church on a Wednesday night for their Bible study. 3,000 people there. For their Bible study. It was like going to Disney World. It was like going to a theme park. And all these people, like the picture, all these people walking around with their Bibles. Back then, you know, people didn't have the electronics, so they're walking around with their Bibles. And I said, what is this? These people look like they're nuts. They're all carrying these Bibles, you know, and I'm trying to just put myself in as an outsider. And it, it was, it was sensational, folks. It was just like, you could literally feel like God was in their Bible study. I mean, there was, there, it was like the presence of God was there. They were meeting, and there was an ecclesia there. It didn't matter that the grounds were so large and so immaculate and all. Of, it was the fact that these people were meeting to, to, uh, uh, to honor, to somehow celebrate, to somehow learn about Jesus, these people. I think of... Um, uh, I've recommended this movie to you folks, and I very rarely do this, but there is a great little movie on Netflix right now, still there, called The Hill. 
you definitely need to watch this movie. And you have a preacher in this movie, this little country church in Texas in the late 60s. And you have this preacher, <laughs> and he's, he's doing his thing on Sunday morning, you know. And um, he, he has two people in his congregation. One of them is spitting tobacco in a little can during the service. The other one is smoking a cigarette during the service, okay? And so it's, it's, it's quite hilarious. I'm telling you folks, you will really, you'll be stunned at how interesting this movie is. So anyway, this preacher, he's trying to do his thing, and finally, he just loses it with these two. And he says, you know, God's temple is holy, and here you are, Sister Babbitt, spitting in your spittoon, and here you are, brother, whatever, and you're smoking your cigarette, and you're dishonoring the temple of God, and I am your pastor, and it is my duty to tell you, you are dishonoring God's house. And they, they are very irate. At his, at his reaction to them. And the man with the cigarette, he says, you know, I work in such and such a circumstance down in the, in the fire pits and whatever, and I don't get any time for a smoke break the whole week. This is the only time. And you've got this lady, you know, spitting in her spittoon, and they get so fed up with this pastor that they just run him out. They kick him out of his church. <laughs> and he ends up in another church, same kind of folk, and he's got another guy in his service, and he's smoking. Right in the service, he's smoking. And what does the pastor do this time? Nothing. He just keeps on going. And he talks about, you know, the Holy Spirit, and we need to be sanctified, and we need to live holy lives, and so on. And you see the guy put his little cigarette butt out on the church floor. You know, maybe he's convicted a little bit. Who knows? But you see that the view there is that the temple of God is the building. It's not. The temple of God is used. You are the temple of God. You are the people. Huge, huge implications behind this. And Paul will use this again in practical ways in dealing with this church. Here you have uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and you've got people uh, taking people to court. Uh, we looked at this uh, uh, last week. And then he will use this whole thing of uh, you are the temple of the Spirit. And here he'll get into the, the more mm, sensitive areas. This is precisely where Facebook copyrighted me last week. We'll see if they do it again this week. I'm not sure. But this is what he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and it really runs from verses 13 to 20. You see the whole thing. And he says, the body, however... And here, remember, he's talking to people who live in Aphrodite's city, folks. This is a goddess with three temples. If the historian uh, who's often quoted is correct, you have a huge uh, temple prostitution set up up there at the top of the mountain uh, on Acrocorinth with a thousand temple prostitutes, if he's right. We're not sure he's right. His name is Strabo. But for sure, there was something crazy going on in that city. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't be addressing this so firmly. 
and he says, the body is not meant for, and modern translations say sexual immorality, the word in the Greek, uh, I prefer using more, it's the word porneia. It's an all-encompassing word that is describing this kind of immoral sexuality situation. Your body was not meant for that, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Wow. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. There's the resurrection. And he will raise us also. So your bodies are important. Now, in the Greek uh, line of thinking, they kind of worshipped the physical body. He's not saying you have to worship the body, but he's certainly saying that the body is important. Now, what else is he saying? He's not, he's not trying to be Gnostic here. The Gnostics would say that the physical world, that the body is evil. He's not saying that the body is evil. He's saying the Lord will raise your body from the dead. That makes it really, really important. And then he's going to go into some do you not knows. He will ask it three times. Do you not know this? Do you not know this? Do you not know this? Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies, watch the theology, are members of Christ himself? Your individual body is a member of Christ himself. We are the body of Christ. So we have this kind of relationship with Jesus in that way. So when we talk about the body of Christ, we're talking about us when we remember communion, we remember Jesus' actual physical body, but we also remember us because we are the body of Christ. Wow, if a person really thought that their physical body was actually like a member of the body of Christ in a, in a universal sense. You know, you can go to countries in Africa. I see Marie-José Mann is here, who spent many, many years in countries in Africa with, with uh, uh, Pastor Mann. And folks, like, you go there, and the body of Christ is there. You go to Port-au-Prince, Haiti this morning, where our missionaries of Charbonneau's are, and the body of Christ is there. If people really thought that their individual bodies were actually part of the body of Christ, that's going to really change the way that, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute, one of these, maybe one of these people who worked at the, up at the temple, shall we, shall we do? No, you would never do that if you really believe that your physical body is somehow a member of the body of Christ worldwide. Do you not know, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute, maybe one of these in Corinth, is one with her in body. And then he's going to pull a verse out of Genesis, a marriage verse. The two, it is said, the two will become one flesh. So what you're doing is you're one fleshing a member of Christ's body with this, this woman who you do not know in this transaction. That's what you're doing. That's a marriage thing that you're doing. 
Back in that time, marriage was very, very simple. You have a ceremony and the couple consummates their marriage. The whole thing, the whole consummation was the idea of they're married. And he's saying, here you are doing this in this transactional fashion with this, you know, woman in Acrocorinth somewhere. Don't you know that that's a marriage thing? You are uniting yourself with that person. You're not supposed to do that. That's what he's saying. Now, I know we live in the province of Quebec, and I know it's very taboo to say this, but I'm going to tell you, folks, God hasn't really changed his perception on this. Here in the province of Quebec, this is the, this is the cohabitation capital of Canada. And there are, there are reasons for this. Uh, there are religious reasons for this, having to do with the Catholic Church and so on. But I'm going to tell you, folks, as offensive as it may sound, you are rolling the dice there. You are taking some crazy high risks. And this is the typical thing in Quebec where couples live together and say, we don't need to be married. We don't need to do this. Folks, if you still believe that your body is a member of the body of Christ worldwide, you should marry that person. You really should, folks, because what you're doing is you're rolling that dice. You are taking that big risk. And don't tell me you don't know that because you're in that relationship because you can have the best of both worlds. You can get out. It's a whole lot easier to get out, right? But when you put that ring on your finger and when you make that commitment public, oh boy, it's a little bit different getting out. And the person who you're leaving when you get out may want something in return, like a little bit of this, right? A little bit of your money, a little bit of your property. And you say, well, I'm not so sure I want to go that far. I want to have all of the benefits of being together and so on and so on. But I don't want to make that commitment public because if I do that, if I do it that way, then that's going to be real painful if I want to get out. That's right. That's the whole point. The whole point is that there is to be a safety and a security to this relationship. But when you're not doing it that way, you're just rolling the dice. You're hurting yourself. And some of you, you've, you've, you've lived that way and you know that when there's that breakup or when that person leaves or when you leave, it's pain, pain, pain. Sure, it's a whole lot more painful when there's marriage. But when you put that ring on your finger, you're not putting that ring on your finger temporarily. When you did it and at that time, you knew you meant it. You knew you meant it. Now, there's people in this room, I'm sure, that have been through a, a divorce, maybe a couple of divorces, but you never, when you put that ring on your finger, wanted it to end that way. It ended that way, and it was painful, painful, painful when that divorce came. But that wasn't your intention. And there's a huge difference, folks. Uh, you know, this is not popular to say in, in this province, but... I, I think that you, there's a huge difference between saying, hey, we're going to do things the Quebec way, or we're going to say, no, we're going to do it God's way. And I'll make a deal with you. I'll, and I've done this before with couples. If you say, well, I'm in that situation. Will you marry us? Come and see me. Seriously. Folks, I can do a wedding for no money. Give me 30 days, two witnesses, and your commitment. No problem. God sees it. God sees it, and God knows it, and God takes it very, very seriously. And I don't do long weddings, folks. Fastest wedding I ever did was 18 minutes. And I think the couple's still together. 
<laughs> so sorry to tread on some some uh, some you know sensitive ground, folks, but it needs to be said. And look at the culture that we live in. Here he's talking about you know this prostitution back then, but his whole theme is this whole thing of porneia. And you have this vividly, vividly, vividly today in our world, in our culture, especially here in the province of Quebec, which is a leader in this whole area. Folks, we are on the edge. We're like L.A. and New York. We're like that in terms of the way that we think about these things. We're making it up as we go, folks. And there is so much of this. I, I pray you parents who have, you know, kids who are growing up, even small kids, you have a huge challenge on your hands, an enormous, enormous mountain to climb if you want to teach your kids to have integrity and to have healthy understandings of sexuality and so on as they grow. You have a challenge on your hands that I think without God is perhaps insurmountable the false information that your children are getting, even in grade school, folks, even from their peers, the exposition, folks, there are young children. I did not plan on saying this. There are young children, four, five, six years old, who are exposed to hardcore porn by their parents. They're going to school with your kids, folks. And they learn those things because their parents expose them to it. It is acceptable to them. And you see all kinds of wacko behavior as a result. I'm telling you, the information that they're being pummeled with, and as they grow and they get into adolescence, young adulthood, it is a relentless assault of unhealthy, destructive information pummeling them with more and more ways to experience what Paul calls porneia. And it doesn't stop. It is absolutely relentless. And somebody has to have enough courage to say, you want to know the truth? Come to me. And it's high time that the church talked about this in a healthy and sober and non-judgmental fashion, folks, because this is a major Toxic cancer that is destroying people's lives. Even in the church world, folks, the statistics are, are terrifying. They're telling us that half of the people in evangelical churches are hooked on porn, folks. Half. This is a terrifying statistic. So parents, people who have influence over young people, even those of you, you're, you know, your 20s, 30s, 40s, you're thinking about commitments, marriage, all these things. Wow, wow, wow. Be careful. Be careful the choices that you are making. These things that God puts in his word are not to punish you or to restrict your lives. It's so that your lives would be healthy and so that they would be fruitful. Not, he's not a religious prude, folks. He is not against sexuality. He created it. But there is, a, there is a context for it that is healthy, and there is a context for it that is destructive. I don't know who I'm speaking to in this room. Maybe there are those of you, and you're right there, or you have kids, and they are off the deep end with this stuff. 
be courageous, stand up, and do what you can to, to teach them with, with uh, all of the power of the Spirit that you can find, folks. This is a huge, huge challenge. May God help you if you're a parent in this room today. I am so off track. I'm not sure why, folks, but it could be, I don't know, it could be that God wants to hammer something into the lives of a few people today. I'm not sure. Maybe there are people online and that's you, but I am totally, totally off script here. But the idea is that your body matters to God. It matters to God. And this, the context here has to do with this whole pornea thing, but you can stretch this context even beyond because your body is a temple. It collectively, when we gather, but even individually, the very presence of the living God is in you if you are a Christ follower. And if you believe that, that should radically change your life. I'm done, folks. <laughs> I feel a little strange here because I've gone so off track. This very, very rarely happens with me. But would you stand with me? And I trust that uh, God is about his own business uh, with this. And, um, but, folks, if, you're, if, really, if you're struggling in any of these areas, you, you know, come and see me. It could be that, that this, again, that the Spirit is at work in people's lives. Come and see me, folks, and in a non-judgmental fashion, uh, we can, as the church, uh, walk through this together. Father, I thank you for each one who's gathered here this morning, those who are online, oh God, and uh, I pray, uh, Lord, these are tough, tough, tough days. These are such challenging days, but I pray, God, that even in this, this ecclesia here, we would be challenged to live for Jesus. We would be challenged to do things his way. We would be challenged, Lord, to, to uh, submit all of our lives to you, uh, for you uh, are the Passover lamb that was sacrificed for us. For we are the very temple of the living presence of God. May it alter what we do. May it alter what we say. May it alter how we live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you this morning. Remember, your kids are outside in uh, screen 11, and the older kids are with the, uh, the leaders of the youth ministry. Have a great, great Sunday, everybody. Any guests, I'll be right up at the front. I'd love to meet you before you go. God bless you, everyone.